Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. Uh, this week, we're continuing our series, Shouts in the Silence. As we look to try and understand, how, look to try and make sense out of these times and these moments in our lives where it's hard to see God, where it's hard to hear God, where it's hard to, to say, I can see what God is doing, or, or I can hear God speaking to me. And we're using the book of Esther as our backdrop for this, because as we've talked about, God doesn't show up in the book of Esther, at least by name, at least by name. But what we're discovering is as we walk through the book of Esther, even when we don't see God speaking, and even when we don't hear God speaking, even when we don't see God doing anything, we see that even in the silence, God is shouting to us. And he's got words for us. And we see God at work even when we can't see God at work. And so today, we're going to be looking at the conclusion of Esther chapter 2. And, we're, or, and then we're going to look at chapter 3 today. And so if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to Esther chapter 2 next week. Um, we're actually going to be taking a break from our Esther series next week. Uh, because as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, this weekend is our pastor's retreat, where we talked about having all these pastors come to Airdrie from all over across our unit. And so next week, we're going to have somebody as a guest speaker next week. Um, next week, we're actually going to have our unit supervisor. Her name is Carolyn Kroll, and she's going to be sharing with us in both services. And I'll talk more about what it means that Carolyn is our unit supervisor next week, and I'll talk more about who Carolyn is next week. But I do want to let you know that Carolyn is somebody very, very special to my heart, um, because she was my youth pastor. Her and her husband, Ed, were, were my youth pastors, and they've been a, they were a big, you know, if you were with us last year, we celebrated 30 years as a church, and they've been a big part of this church in the past, and so we're really excited. I'm really excited to have Carolyn come and share with us, and her, her husband, Ed, who they both pastor together in, in Cranbrook, BC. They're going to be with us next week, and Carolyn's going to be sharing with us, and so we're really excited for that. But this week, um, we're going to look again at the book of Esther. Last week, we, we saw the moment where, where Esther became queen. And, and we had this sort of celebratory but still very difficult moment where, where Esther becomes queen. But as we looked at the circumstances that kind of surrounded that, it was still a pretty complicated story. And it was a complicated situation that gets us there, that pulls us in lots of different directions. But from the story of Esther becoming queen, we have this transition that takes place where, where we move from the story of Esther becoming queen to this other story that takes place. But in between, in between, so in, in Esther uh, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, the story of Esther becoming queen is concluded. And in Esther chapter 2, verse 21, this new story picks up. 
But in verse 20, we're just given this little reminder, something to keep in mind. And it is important that we keep this in mind because it's really going to inform some things as we move forward. But in Esther chapter 2, verse 20, we're first given this reminder before we move on. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to. We're just reminded really quickly that, that Esther hasn't told anybody of her nationality, that, that she's a Jew, for, she's one of the captive Jews, and she hasn't told anybody about her family. She's kept all of this really secret. And we need to keep that in the backdrop of our minds as we move forward. The writer reminds us of this because it's important to remember that as everything unfolds over the next little while, still she hasn't told anyone. But from this, we move into this totally different story. Esther's cousin Mordecai is suddenly put in front. That he, He's moved into the front of the story. And so we pick up a new story in verse 21, where it says, During the time that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Begthana and Theresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And so remember, if you remember last time, we talked about how King Xerxes, after he was defeated in battle, he had kind of come back and really began to sort of throw his weight around and sort of like take advantage of his royalty and the rights that he had and, and all that. And what we see is that as he's back, the, these other officials in the king's court, they become really frustrated and they make a plan to kill the king. But Mordecai finds out, or it says, but Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was in, or investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Mordecai wasn't messing around. All of this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now, this part of the story is pretty straightforward, but it's important that we understand because this is, again, going to come into play as we move forward. Mordecai, he's, he's doing his job sitting by the king's gates, and he overhears two officials making a plan to kill the king. Mordecai, knowing that he knows the queen, their cousins, he's raised her. He goes to and finds the queen and says, you need to tell the king that these two individuals are planning on assassinating the king. So Esther goes and she says to the king, this is what's taking place. She gives them their names and makes sure to say, my cousin Mordecai was the one who told me. So the king does an investigation. He discovers it's true. And the two men are killed. And you'd think from this moment that Mordecai would be celebrated. That, wow, look, at he saved the life of the king. What a tremendous thing he's done. And we read that it's all of these events were recorded in the books of the annals of the presence of the king. But this is kind of where that part of the story seems to end. Because when we turn the page to Esther chapter 3 we discover that the king is celebrating one of his official or one of his officials but it's it's not mordecai it's somebody else it's it's a man named haman so if we go to esther chapter 3 verse 1 it says after these events now last week we talked about how 
Phrases like that are, we can sometimes interpret that as like, oh, well, the next day. But what it really does tell us is that there's a, there's a significant time jump that takes place here. That, that there, there's more than just, well, it was a couple days later. What we're going to read later on in verse 7 is that all of these events are actually taking, taking place five years later than the events of Esther chapter 2. So at this point, Esther has been queen for five years. She's been keeping her nationality a secret. She's been keeping her family lineage a secret. She's been keeping all of this secret. But what we see is that Xerxes honors someone else. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamathida the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Now, something that probably flies under the radar for you as we read that, because it does for me, and I can, you know, not like blank on it, but I will skip past and read kind of through it because it doesn't really mean anything to me. But I'm going to show you why sometimes it does, and usually it does. But you probably didn't sit up and go, ooh, when I said that Hangman was an Agagite. You probably, oh, well, I don't know what that means. It's something from back then. Good to know, moving on. But there's actually something fairly significant here. Um, in the book of Esther, there's only two people that we're given background to. There's only two people who were told sort of their family lineages of. There's, there's Haman that we just read. And then there's Esther's cousin, Mordecai. And if we go back to when we first met Mordecai, in chapter 2, verse 5, we read, Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish. Now, again, all of that background information, you may go, huh, neat. I don't know what any of those words mean. Awesome. Keep moving. But there's actually something in these details that is, stands out to us. See, we're told that Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin and that in his family lineage, there was a man named Kish. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament and you look up the Kish, what you discover is that Kish was a descendant of King Saul. And so what we're hearing, what we're seeing, is that in Mordecai's lineage was King Saul. Interesting. Neat. Something to remember. But when we go back and we see that Haman was told to be an Agagite, what that means is that he was a descendant of King Agag. Now, probably all of, oh, now I get it. No, you don't. <laughs> I don't either. I, you know, we're, we're, I'm looking all of this stuff as we go. But who was King Agag? He was a king of the Amalekites. Now, if you know your Old Testament stories of that, King Saul fought many a battle against King Agag and the Amalekites. That 500 years, or hundreds of years anyway, before this story takes place, these two family lineages were already in opposition to each other. That they know their families. They, know, they have a past shared history where their families have not gotten along. In fact, they fought wars against each other. They were, they were nations 
fighting against each other. And this shared history, uh, uh, this shared ancestry, is something that's going to come into play in a moment. So back to chapter 3. There's, so I've got a few things that I'm trying to just get you to keep in the background of your mind. That, that Esther hasn't told anybody yet. And that Mordecai has saved the king's life. And that Mordecai and Haman have the shared history. Because all these things are going to come into play as we move through today and into the coming weeks. But back to chapter 3. So we see that, that Xerxes has appointed Haman as his number 2. His, his most important official. And in fact, what we read is that he has commanded that all of the other officials kneel down whenever Haman comes by. And so he says, it says, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded this concerning him. Everybody does it except for one. Except for Mordecai. It says Mordecai would not bow down. Now, we don't know why. We're not told. What we do know is it's probably not like Daniel when he wouldn't bow or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they wouldn't bow. Because remember, Mordecai's keeping his Jewish ancestry and his Jewish religion. He's keeping it a secret. But what we do know is that for whatever reason, Mordecai says, I, I'm not going to bow. And much like his friend Xerxes, Haman doesn't take disrespect well. And so Haman sees that Mordecai will refuse to bow to him. And so he decides that he's not just going to exact revenge on Mordecai, but he's going to exact revenge on Mordecai's people. That he makes this plan that he's going to punish Mordecai and everyone like him. And so he makes this plan to kill all of the Jewish people. But this is where I think you can see the family lineages of these two men coming into play. Because nobody knows Mordecai is a Jew. He hasn't told anybody. But perhaps people who have the same homeland, whose families have been at war with each other for centuries, who have fought many battles, fought wars, and you're your descendant is one king and his descendant, that there is this common lineage that allows, Mordecai, or that allows Haman to know maybe more than your average Persian would know. And so Mordecai concocts this plan to get revenge, or sorry, Haman concocts this plan to get revenge on Mordecai and all of his people. And we see this plan beginning in verse 7, but it kind of starts out in a funny place and <clears throat> We'll talk about why in a moment after I take a drink. I don't know if, I, oh, there we go, good. I was like, I don't know if I just blew my voice out or what. But verse seven, in the 12th month of the year, Xerxes, or sorry, in the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the purr, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. So lots to unpack there. First month of the year is a month named Nisan. And at that first month, Haman begins to put his plan into place. Now, one of the things that would take place in this time, in order to sort of get a divine help, they would, they would cast lots. What that would mean, essentially, roll dice. Is they would assign, you know, a significance to whatever, and they would roll the dice with the belief that God would guide the dice. 
So Haman first, as the first thing he wants to do is he wants to come up with a plan and a timeline for what to do this. So we see the first thing he does is he rolls some dice to select a day and a month, believing that God will guide the dice to show him what to do. And so he rolls these dice to select a day and a month, and the lot fell, uh, Matt, could you click back on the, the thing there? Um, the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. So just to put this in context for us a little bit so that we can help, it's the middle of January. He's rolled these dice to find out when God wants him to kill all of the Jewish people. And so he rolls the dice, and what he's discovered is that God has said, December is when I have this plan. So we're in January, he rolls the dice, and he believes God has said, December is when you're to do this. And so then in verse 8, now that he's got his date, he's got his timeline, he goes to the king in verse 8 and begins to sort of work to see his plan come to fruition. And in verse 8 it says, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Haman comes to the king and he does his best to manipulate and convince the king that there's this problem. There's these people. And there's only one solution. You see, they keep to themselves. They, they keep their old customs. They, they don't really do what you've asked them to do. And they're, they're kind of creating their own little pockets of societies inside. And, and they're not really submitting to you. And I think this is only going to get worse. So the only way, now that this ball's begun rolling, we, we can't stop it. We, we can't get the ball back. The only thing we can do is to blow up the ball. The only thing we can do is to kill these people. And Haman even puts his money where his mouth is. He says, I'll give $10,000. Now remember that we talked about last time that when Haman had gone off to fight, or not, when Xerxes had gone off to fight his war with, the, um, with Greece, he had fundamentally almost bankrupted the Persian Empire. And so Haman is kind of pushing where it hurts a little bit. Like, I know you're strapped for cash. So if you let me do this, I'll make a really large donation. And, and that will help. And so he, he presents this problem and he offers a solution to the king. And his plan works. Where we see in verse 10 that the king actually takes off his signet ring and gives it to Haman. And what that is, is a picture of is that Xerxes is handing over the authority of the throne of the king of Persia to Xerxes when it comes to this. That he is saying, 
You have my authority that if anybody questions anything you have to say, you show them the ring because the ring is a picture of the authority of the king. And as we talked about in our first time, when he banished Vashti the queen, we read that no order from the king can be reversed or questioned. And so he hands Haman his ring and he says to him, with all the authority of the throne of Persia, he says to Haman, keep your money and do with these people as you please. And so we read that a command is given. It was even written in every language throughout the empire, so there was no confusion. That it wasn't just written in the official language, it was written in every language, so everyone everywhere would know. And it was sealed on the authority of the king's ring. And so in verse 13, we read this Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy kill and annihilate all the Jews. There's no room for ambiguity there. Does he really mean? No, he doubles down. Does he really? No, he triples. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. There's no room for ambiguity. Young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. We're going to kill them all and take their stuff on this one single day. Now, I want to talk about these dates for a moment because they do matter. First, we know that the story begins in the first month of the year. For our, We'll just put it into our terms. The story be, takes place in January. But the death sentence is going to be carried out on the last month of the year, December. So January 13th, an order goes out that on December 13th, all of the Jewish people are to be killed, annihilated, destroyed, and all of their worldly goods are to be plundered. That means for an entire year, these people have to live every moment with this hanging over them. Every birthday, every child that's born, every time a young man meets a young woman and they fall in love, only till December, that every moment they live is lived under the weight of the date of your execution is commanded by the authority of the king of Persia. That's, that's not great. That's a pretty unbelievably awful place to try and have to exist from. Every moment of celebration... Everything that happens will have to happen with the knowledge that they're going to be killed, every single one of them, on December 13th. Can't imagine what trying to live under that would look like. 
But there's something more to these dates. Um, we read that the order was given on the 13th day of the first month. But if you go back to Leviticus chapter 23, we learn that God commands the celebratory feast of the Passover to begin on the 14th day of the first month. And so this order comes one day before the biggest moment in the Jewish calendar. That as Jews from all over the empire are looking to celebrate this moment, this incredible moment, the darkest possible shadow is cast over top of that. That they try and they look back and they, they think, wow, look at this moment. And they're confronted by the fact that it certainly seems like all is lost. Everything has gone the worst possible way. But there's another way to look at this. Remember last week how we talked about how sometimes we may not be able to see God, but we may be able to see his fingerprints. That we may not always be able to say, this is what God is doing in my life. That, that as Esther was, was removed from her family and dragged to the castle or dragged to the palace and forced to compete in this beauty pageant where either she becomes a, a wife or she becomes a slave. And she's forced into all of this. And it's this difficult moment. And we're like, well, what is God doing? That sometimes we can't always say, well, look at what we can see. Look at the glory of God. But sometimes we can see his fingerprints. We can see how Esther was cared for, and we can see these things. Obviously, the announcement that comes that says you're all going to die, it's hard to find God in that. We don't really sit back and go, hmm, wonder what God's doing here. God, what are you trying to speak to me? God, what are you, what are you trying to say to me? God, what, what, this is interesting. Faith is shattered. God, who, God's lost. The king has, has issued this and nobody can change it. Even the king himself can't go back on this. That's the law. And it comes right on their biggest day of the year. But there's a verse in Proverbs that I just want to share with you that, that can help us maybe begin to see the other side of this. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Remember, Haman cast lots. We read in Proverbs that the lot may be cast, but the decision is God. And so when we put everything together that we've talked about so far in this series, that even in the chaos, God is in control. And that God isn't just great, but he's also good. We can maybe see why God chose this day of all days for the news to be announced. See, as faithful Jews are gathering together to remember the deliverance of God's people, rescuing them out of the hands of their enemies in Egypt, that even as they get this terrible news, that maybe as they gather together, 
there can be some hope that if God did it for them, he can do it for us. That if God did it then, he can do it today. Right here, right now. And as chapter 3 comes to an end, we see two very different reactions to the command. We see in the final verse that Xerxes and Haman sit down and have a drink. But the people are bewildered. The king and his number one advisor sit down and look at the problem we've solved. But the people don't understand. So another chapter comes to an end. We come to the end of chapter 3 of Esther. And it can still be so hard to see God in any of this. The, The story is getting harder. Things just seem to be getting worse. As we've gone from drunken parties with exploitation of women to human trafficking, and now we're at mass genocide. Things are progressing in the wrong direction. And as the third installment comes to an end, things seem to be rougher than maybe ever. But so in the silence, what can we hear God saying? In the seeming absence of God, what can we understand that maybe God wants us to take away from this? Well, I think what I want to highlight for us today is that Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 16 that to follow him, to be faithful to Jesus, means that we wouldn't be strangers to persecution and injustice. That the closer we follow him, the closer we're going to be to people in conflict with us because of our faith. And John 17 reminds us of the difficulty of trying to live our lives in a world that's just not our home. Just like these exiles in Persia. And so to remain faithful in the face of faithlessness, it's not going to be easy for the Jews in Susa. And it's not always going to be easy for us either. But remember the words that Jesus speaks at the end of John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Your planned execution is probably the worst kind of trouble we could ever imagine. There's not much worse than being told on the authority of the most powerful man in the world whose order cannot be changed that on this day, you're going to die. That's pretty heavy. In this world... You will have trouble, but we can be encouraged in the midst of the trouble because Jesus has overcome the world. And it's true. 
in our story, the Israelites are living under an incredibly dark shadow. But they're not only going to survive this, they're going to rise in power. See, God made a promise to his people. He promised them that he would be with them and that he would carry them through their captivity. And last week, we read how God makes that same promise to us. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it through. That he who started something in you isn't going to abandon you halfway through. Isn't going to carry you this far and then be like, you know what? This is too much even for me. You know what? You're too much of a mess for me. You know what? This is too hard even for me. You know what? I've decided I don't care anymore. Good luck. See you later. But he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it through to completion. But the question is, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do on January 15th, looking forward in a bad way to December 13th? What do we do on May 1st? What do we do for Thanksgiving? What do we do for your birthday? What do we do for our anniversary? What do we do on all of these days when all we know is that on December 13th we're going to die? What happens if we have a baby? All we've done is we've destined this baby to die. What, have, what do we do? How do we? It's great to have a promise that one day, but what do we do now? What do you do now? When you know the promise that God has made, you know who God is, you, you know what it is that you believe God has for you. But right now, I can't see it. Right now, it's not there. Right now, it doesn't exist. What do we do? Well, in 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to his friend Timothy. And in this is a, and this is a moment where, where Paul is unsure of what the future holds. See, Paul's writing from a prison cell where, where he's in jail. And, and much like how the Persians didn't mess around when somebody did something wrong. The Romans were similar. And all that Paul had done wrong was tell people about Jesus. But the Romans, they really believed in their law and order. And so Paul doesn't know what the future holds. He doesn't know if he's going to live, if he's going to die. He doesn't know if he'll ever get out of this prison cell. But he writes to his friend Timothy, and he tells him this. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. What do we do when we don't know what the future looks like? What do we do 
when we don't know what tomorrow looks like? What do we do when we live our lives with December 13th? When our lives are just hurtling towards the worst possible thing? What do we do when it seems like we can't hear God shouting to us in his seeming silence? When the world around us seems so, so faithless, we trust in God's faithfulness. When we don't know what to do, when we don't know where to look, when we don't know what to see. We trust in God's faithfulness. The picture that I had in my mind was like, there's the story in the Bible of of the woman who has the issue with bleeding. And, And what she tries to do is she just tries to like press in and she's like, if I can just touch his robe, touch Jesus's robe, I'll be healed. And the picture that I have is that sometimes, like, all we can do in life is just try to, like, reach out and grab on to that little bit of his robe and let him sort of drag us through life. Because all I can do, all I can do is just grab on and just hang on. Because it's, it's all I've got. I, I, don't, I can't do any, so Jesus, you're going to have to pull me through all the muck and all the, because all, I can't even stand, all I can do is just hang on to the back of your garment and just let you walk and drag me through all of this, trusting that we're going to get to the other side together. When the world around us seems so faithless, we, we trust in God's faithfulness. Because just like the story of your life and and the story that's being told in your life, the story of Esther is far from over. We've come to this incredibly low point, but this story is far, far from over. And God is still at work. And we will see God's faithfulness on full display for the Jews in Persia And friends, you will see God's faithfulness in your life as well. As this story continues, we're going to see God's provision. We're going to see God's love. We're going to see God's care. We're going to see the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. And friends, you will see the fulfillment of God's promise to his people, to you in your lives. Because no matter how faithless we are, no matter how faithless the world we find ourselves in, God remains faithful. Let's pray together. Father God, we know and we recognize that we, we sometimes we just can't see it. We sometimes live in places where, where we just don't know what, what is happening, why it's happening, where this is going, what the outcome might be, how any of this is meant to be okay. And God, I thank you that in those moments where we struggle, where we can find ourselves lost for words, lost for things to say, lost for things to believe, God, I thank you that no matter how 
faithless our circumstances may try to make us. God, I thank you that in the midst of all of it, you are faithful. And so God, I pray for each one here today, for each person here that is maybe struggling with understanding what is happening, that as they look at the story and the place they find themselves and they think, I don't know where God is in any of this. I don't know what I'm supposed to say, how I'm supposed to say, oh, God is good. I don't know how I'm supposed to say, oh, look at what the Lord is showing. I don't know how I'm even supposed to see him. God, I pray right now for each one, God, that you would give them a picture of your faithfulness. God, that they would be able to see the faithfulness of God on display in their lives. God, that when things are at their worst, God, I thank you that it's not because you've left us, it's not because you've abandoned us, it's not because you've grown sick of us, it's not because you've somehow said, I'm done with him, I'm done with her, this is, they've gone too far, they've done too much, I can't take it anymore, I don't want them anymore. God, I thank you that even at life's worst, God, you are faithful. And God, I pray that as we journey together through life and as we journey together through the story of Esther, God, I pray that as we see your promised protection and your promised fulfillment and your promised love and care for these Jews in exile, God, I pray that you would the same way show your promise, love, care, protection, and faithfulness for your children who live in exile today. God, we know that this world is not our home, and we need you to help us make it through. God, we sang earlier about how much we need you. And God, I pray for those who really need you today. God, would you show up in their lives? Would you give them the gift of the knowledge of your faithfulness in their life? God, I'm so grateful that no matter where we are, no matter where we find ourselves right now, even in this moment, God, that we can turn and find a faithful rock to plant our feet on and to weather the storms of life. We can turn and we can stand on you. God, we thank you for your love, your care, and your protection over us. And God, I just pray that you would help us to hold on, to cling to, to grab onto, and just refuse to let go of your faithfulness. God, thank you that we know your faithfulness. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Small clouds all around Couldn't see Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family, and that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca, or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on Contact Us from the main menu, or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on Our Pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go.
You're fine.